I invite you to turn with me as we turn towards worshiping the Lord through the study of His Word. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to study together verses 1 to 10. So when you find that, would you stand out of reverence for God's word as we read these things together? I'm actually going to start two verses back at the end of uh, chapter 6 for a little bit of context. So starting in chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, although these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the Holy Word of God. You may be seated. This morning, as we just saw, we are in Hebrews chapter 7, which is a little over halfway through this magisterial book. And this chapter that we have the privilege of studying together this morning is arguably the most important chapter in the book. It is like chapter 7 is the the beating heart of the book of Hebrews. And we're going to study this important chapter in two parts. We're going to take a look at verses 1 to 10. This is going to be sermon part 1 today. And then we'll study the rest of the chapter as part 2, the next Lord's Day. And so this morning we're going to be looking at this Melchizedek person. And our big question for today is this. What's the big deal about this Melchizedek guy? And if you remember, if you've been through, if you've heard a few of the sermons lately in the book of Hebrews, 
Melchizedek has already been mentioned a few times. He's been mentioned in connection with Jesus Christ, that Jesus is an eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But it is here now in chapter 7 that Hebrews opens up to talk directly about who this mysterious figure from the Old Testament is. And the reason that Hebrews is doing this is that he wants to lay down the foundation so that he can begin to talk about Christ and his high priestly office in the second half of the chapter. And so that's going to be part two next week. So in our passage this morning, we see the foundation being laid. And the rest of chapter seven is going to be built on that foundation. We're going to study this passage this morning in two sections. We're going to ask two important questions. Who is Melchizedek? That's verses 1 and 2. And secondly, why is Melchizedek so special? Verses 3 to 10. What's the big deal about Melchizedek? Why does Hebrews use all this ink talking about this mysterious king? And then we will conclude by, dis by discussing the connection between Melchizedek and Christ. So let's go to our first question this morning. Who is Melchizedek? So let's look at verse 1 again. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to, Ab and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And so we learn a little bit about who Melchizedek is from these two verses. From verse 1 we learn that Melchizedek was the king of a city called Salem. Well, where is that? Is that Salem, Oregon? No, that's a very different Salem. Where is this Salem that's being talked about here? Well... It was a city that was called Salem in Abraham's day. But then a few centuries later, when the children of Israel came up out of Egypt and they entered the promised land under Joshua, the same city had a different name. Then it was called Jebus. And then fast forward a few centuries more, and then Jebus was conquered by King David. And David renamed the city of Jebus and he made it the new capital city over his kingdom. And what did King David call it? Jerusalem. So Salem is pre-Jerusalem. And Melchizedek was king over this ancient city 1,000 years before David made it into Jerusalem. So that's the first thing we learn about Melchizedek. He's king of pre-Jerusalem. He's the king of Salem. But we also learn from verse 1 that Melchizedek is not only a king, he's also a priest. He's a high priest of the Most High God. But who is that? Is that a pagan deity like Baal or Dagon or Chemosh or Molech? No. The Hebrew for Most High God, the Hebrew for this name is El Elyon. And El Elyon was another name for the one true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the same God 
that Abraham worshipped. And this is why Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tenth of his spoils. If Melchizedek was just some pagan priest, Abraham wouldn't have given him a cent. But because Melchizedek was a priest of El Elyon, the one true and living God, then Abraham could fellowship with him and receive his blessing. But wait a minute, we might say. At this time, wasn't Abraham the only servant of the true and living God alive at this time? Well, it is true that God specifically revealed himself to Abraham, and he specifically promised to bless him and to make him into a great nation. But we have to realize that Abraham was not the only believer in God at this time. For example, think of Job. Job was more or less a contemporary of Abraham, living around the same time. And Job was not related to Abraham, and yet Job worshipped the one true and living God. And we can think of his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They weren't that great of friends, but they, they also believed in the one true God, as did their younger friend, Elihu, who speaks later on in the book of Job. So these are some examples of contemporaries of Abraham who also believed in God. And if we remember that, that Noah believed in God, and Abraham was ten generations from Noah, then we can know that, that knowledge from Noah of the true God had been passed down. According to the genealogy in Genesis chapter 11, there were roughly 260 years from the flood to Abraham's birth. And that's roughly around the same amount of time between now and the American Revolution. So that's not really a whole lot of time. That's definitely enough time for paganism and polytheism to take root in the world. But the true knowledge of God was still being passed down from Noah among some families at least. And we know from Scripture that God has always preserved a remnant for himself of men and women who seek his face. I think that was true even in Abraham's day. So knowledge of the true God and worship of him was still going on in some quarters right up to Abraham's day. And for examples of this, we have Job and his friends, and we have Melchizedek here, who was a priest of El Elyon, God Most High. Now just turn over with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. So Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 14, we'll read in context where Melchizedek shows up in Abraham's life. We'll see that this priest king, Melchizedek, he appears suddenly out of nowhere. And as you're turning there, we remember the story. Uh, Abraham, his name is Abram at this time. Abram's nephew Lot has been living in the city of Sodom. And Sodom has been defeated in battle. Uh, five kings uh, defeated Sodom. And as a result, Lot and others are taken off as prisoners of war. And so his uncle Abram hears about this and he gets a bunch of, of men together and he goes after them. And Abram succeeds in defeating those five kings who had taken Lot and he rescues his nephew. 
And so in Genesis 14, starting in verse 17, Abram is coming home with his men and with Lot. And this is what happens. So verse 17. After Abram's return from the defeat of Kedolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So notice with me two things here. Notice with me how Abram uses the same description of God that King Melchizedek did. Did you catch that? They both call him God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. So what does that tell us? Well, that indicates to us that both Abram and Melchizedek worship the same God, the one who created all things and so is in possession of the heavens and the earth for all things belong to him. The second thing to notice here is, is notice the difference in how Abram interacts with the two kings here. With the king of Sodom, a wicked and pagan king, Abram refuses to take any reward so that the king of Sodom cannot claim to have made Abram rich. This is a snub. It's a rejection of the king of Sodom and everything he represents. On the other hand, however, look at how differently Abram treats Melchizedek. He gives him a tenth of the spoils and he humbly receives the king's blessing. So this is a king that Abram respects. This is a king that Abram will bow down before. And we see here, just like Hebrews describes them, we see that Melchizedek is the king of Salem. He's a priest of God Most High. He blesses Abram, and Abram gives him a tenth of all his spoils. And this king just appears out of nowhere. He is never mentioned again in the book of Genesis. He's never mentioned beforehand. He's never mentioned again. In fact, he is never mentioned again in the whole Old Testament, except in Psalm 110, where God swears that the Messiah will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Turn back with me back to Hebrews, Hebrews 7. Let's look at verse 2. So back in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. Hebrews makes two points about the meaning of Melchizedek's name. He tells us what the name Melchizedek means. First, he tells us that it means king of righteousness. And that's right. Melchi means king in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language. And Zedek means righteousness. So you put that together, and Melchizedek means king of righteousness. But Hebrews also tells us the name of Melchizedek's city, Salem. He tells us that that means peace. And Salem is actually the same word as shalom. We know that shalom means peace. But we have to ask ourselves, why does Hebrews draw our attention 
to these things. Why does he tell us the meaning of Melchizedek's name, king of righteousness, and that king of Salem means king of peace or king of shalom? It's because he wants us to understand something here. He wants us to understand that Melchizedek was a king who was characterized by two attributes, righteousness and peace. He is a high priestly king who acts righteously and loves shalom. Now, does that sound like anyone else we know? Jesus, of course. Hebrews is using Melchizedek as a type, a type that foreshadows the reality of Jesus Christ and who he is as the ultimate high priest and king who is perfectly righteous and who brings real shalom peace between God and humans. Remember Romans 5 verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means that in Christ, we who were God's enemies, we who hated God and were alienated from him by our rebellion and sin, we who were dead in our transgressions against the holy God, warring against him, fighting him at every turn, opposing him, now in Christ, we have shalom with God. In Christ, we have surrendered to God in repentance. We have laid down our weapons and bowed low before his feet in allegiance. And now peace reigns between us and God. Because now we're on his side, no longer enemies, but allies. Jesus is the true king of righteousness and peace. Because in his righteousness, we have real peace with God. I think that's why Hebrews draws our attention to the meaning of Melchizedek's name and where he's from. That he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Foreshadowing the ultimate and true king of righteousness and peace. Let us move on to our second section this morning, verses 3 to 10. And here we ask the question, why is Melchizedek so special? And we see here that Hebrews makes four points about Melchizedek. First of all, in verse 3, Hebrews says that Melchizedek has an eternal priesthood. So verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Whoa! Hebrews is making much of the fact that Hebrew that, that Melchizedek comes out of nowhere. He's, he comes out of the wild blue yonder, and he's never mentioned again. And normally, when someone new is, is, is introduced in the narrative, especially if he's a king, then usually we hear of who his father is before him, and we often learn of who his son is, who succeeds him as, next as king. And so usually when a king is introduced... They will say, this is king so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. Usually we'll hear about his genealogy a little bit. But Melchizedek just appears out of nowhere. He, he, just, he makes this amazing cameo appearance. He jumps into the story, blesses Abraham, and then he jumps out just as fast. We don't learn who his parents are, nor his children. And Hebrews grabs on to that. And Hebrews says 
It is like this king has no parents and no descendants. It almost seems like he was never born and, and he never died. It almost seems like the Son of God who reigns as king and intercedes as high priest forever. And some people have taken from this verse, verse 3, that Melchizedek was actually Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state. But I do think that that stretches things a little too far. I think instead Hebrews is, is starting with the glorious reality of who Jesus Christ is, and then he is projecting that reality back towards this mysterious figure who is a foreshadowing of Christ as priest and king with an eternal priesthood. And the second reason Melchizedek is so special is that he received a tithe from Abraham. That verses, that's verses 4 to 6. If you look with me there, it says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Let's remember who Abraham was. Abraham was a powerful chieftain. He was highly respected in the land. He had a large clan, over 500 people under him. And he was a force to be reckoned with. He had just defeated five kings in battle. But here he gives away a tenth, that's 10% of his plunder from that battle to some king he's never met. And by giving a tenth, Abraham is recognizing Melchizedek as a priestly representative of the true and living God. For Abraham is giving the tithe through Melchizedek to God in thanksgiving for God having delivered Abraham's enemies into his hand. And so, so when when Hebrews is talking about this 10% or this tithe, he is insinuating that Melchizedek is shown to be greater than Abraham. But then verse 7 explicitly says it. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. This is an amazing statement to make about Abraham. Abraham is the father of Israel. He's the father of faith. He is the original ancestor of the Jewish people. And Melchizedek is superior to Abraham? So that's what Hebrews is saying here. The Hebrew word for bless, to bless, literally means to kneel down. So when we have this mental picture of, of Melchizedek blessing Abraham, we shouldn't, they're not looking eye to eye and, and uh, Melchizedek is just holding his hands up and blessing him. No, our mental picture is that Abraham is on his knees before Melchizedek as he's being blessed. As he receives blessing from him, Abraham is on his knees. Melchizedek, who blesses, is superior. And Abraham, who receives the blessing, is inferior in this situation. And so Abraham is recognizing Melchizedek's superiority by kneeling down before him to receive his blessing. So not only does this king just come out of nowhere, as if he has no beginning and no end, and he's recognized by Abraham as a priest of God, and, and Abraham offers a tithe to God through his priestly mediation. 
But on top of all that, Abraham also recognizes that this king is his superior by kneeling down to receive his blessing. So that's why Melchizedek is so special. He has an, it seems like he's got an eternal priesthood. He receives tithes from Abraham. He blesses Abraham as his superior. And the fourth reason why Melchizedek is so special comes in verses 9 and 10. Because here Hebrews says that in a certain way, in a certain way, Melchizedek even received tithe, not just from Abraham, but from Israel. Let's look at this together, verse 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Do you remember who Levi is? Levi is the great-grandson of Abraham. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, one of them is Levi. So Hebrews is saying, in a certain sense, Levi is still in the body of his great-grandfather. Hebrews' point here is that Melchizedek is so great that in a certain sense, through the hands of Abraham, the great-grandfather, the Levites were offering a tithe through their ancestor. Remember the Levites? They were the ones who collected the tithes dedicated by the Israelites to the Lord. The Levites are represented by their namesake Levi. And Levi is still in the body of Abraham because he hasn't been born yet. So let's pay attention here, though. Because what is Hebrews saying when he says this? Well, let's follow the line of logic here. If Melchizedek receiving a tithe from Abraham and then blessing him demonstrated the superiority of Melchizedek over Abraham, then what does it mean when Melchizedek receives a tithe from Levi and the Levites through Father Abraham? What does that demonstrate? Well, it reveals that Melchizedek is superior to Levi, too, and to all the Levites who descended from him. It is like Aaron and all his fellow Levites are kneeling before Melchizedek, too. It's like Aaron and all his fellow Levites are kneeling before him in the person of their ancestor Abraham to receive Melchizedek's blessing and to give him a tithe. And why does that matter? What is the grand point that Hebrews has been building up to? The answer is this, that the Melchizedekian priesthood is categorically superior to the Levitical priesthood. That's, what he's, that's the whole point of what all this is. The Melchizedekian priesthood is categorically superior to the Levitical priesthood. And if you recall, all the way throughout this book, Hebrews has been showing us that Jesus is categorically superior. In chapter 1, remember, he is superior to the prophets. And also in chapter 1 and 2, he's superior to the angels, both in his deity and his humanity. In chapter 3, he's superior to Moses. In chapter 4, he's superior to Joshua. In chapter 5, he's superior to Aaron. And now here in chapter 7, his Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And that's precisely what we need to take away from this passage this morning. Because all the way along, Hebrews has been saying, Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
And now he has shown that this is a glorious priesthood. It is an eternal priesthood. It's a royal priesthood. It's a superior priesthood. It is a priesthood based on true righteousness and real shalom. A righteousness, a capital R righteousness, that is fully satisfying before God the Father. Such a righteousness that produces lasting peace between God and those who are mediated through this particular high priest. For Jesus Christ is the true king of righteousness, and he is the true king of peace. And so all of this lays the foundation for understanding the great sacrifice that Jesus offered as high priest. If Jesus is a superior high priest in a superior eternal priesthood, then that means that the sacrifice that he offers up to God is a categorically superior sacrifice. It won't need to be offered again and again, over and over, because if it did, then it would also be imperfect. It'd be an insufficient sacrifice. But instead, Jesus goes in and offers one single, absolutely pure and perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that completely satisfies the justice of God and quenches the wrath associated with our sin. And so, Christian, what should we take away from this? That we have such a great high priest. Not after the imperfect order of Aaron, but we have a high priest after the perfect, eternal, sufficient order of Melchizedek. We cannot stand in the presence of a holy God without a mediator. We need a mediator to represent us. And we have a perfect mediator who has purchased peace with God by his righteousness. And out of this peace, out of this cessation of hostilities that we now enjoy with God, and that means that our comfort and our assurance can grow. And this is why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4 verse 7, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because, because we now enjoy peace with God, we can also have the peace of God. Take that thought with you as you leave this place. Jesus is the true king of righteousness and king of peace. By his righteousness, he has purchased peace for us with God. The peace of Jesus Christ has become our peace. And so he can say, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Let us pray. Father God, once again, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for what it teaches us. And we thank you, Father, for the, this typology that we learn about this Melchizedek, who was meant to be a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. That Jesus was not in the priesthood of Aaron, the, the Levitical priesthood. Rather, he was in a higher 
and superior eternal priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. And so, Father, we, we are so thankful that we have a sufficient high priest who offered a sufficient sacrifice. We don't need to, to repeat it. We don't need to do it over and over again. Because it is perfect. Nothing needs to be added to it. And so, Father, as we reflect on the greatness of Melchizedek as king and high priest, let us turn our thoughts towards the king of kings and the, the highest of all priests, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that we would meditate on that fact that it is only in him alone that we can have peace with you. And when we have peace with you, we can have your peace yes. that calms our fears, that stills our doubts, and gets us through day by day as we fix our eyes on heaven and the Savior we await from there. It's in his precious name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.